Hey, it's Jules. Let me ask you a question. How do you talk to that person in your life who doesn't even believe there is a God? Where do you even start the conversation about the Lord? You know, oftentimes I will shy away from those difficult conversations because I don't know what to say. And honestly, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. So I have Grady McMurtry in the studio because he was once an atheist and now is a Christ follower. And in fact, he started Creation Worldview Ministries, where he travels the world teaching how the Bible and science are one and the same and that you can't have one without the other. So you grew up in Berkeley, California, which isn't exactly part of the Bible Belt. Hardly. So explain to everyone the environment in which you were raised in. Well, I was actually born in San Francisco, but we moved over to Berkeley because my father was a student there, became a teaching professor there, and at one time a secretary to the president's. And so I actually grew up on the campus there. Now, in the 50s, in the public schools in California, they taught only evolution, as, of course, today is normal in all states. But in the 50s, it was starting. But, well, but in, particularly in California. Right. Because uh, evolution is the basis of liberalism. Liberalism, of course, is very heavy in California, and therefore it was the one thing they wanted to teach to try to convince people to be liberals. And so I grew up on the campus there. I was learning evolution in the public schools during the day. But I also used to spend my time in the paleontology laboratories at the University of California, Berkeley, learning about dinosaurs, fossils, evolutionary theory. Because of this, I learned these things so well that by the time I hit the third grade, they used to borrow me, actually borrow me from one classroom to the other in the California public school system. And I was teaching the other children about dinosaurs, fossils, and evolutionary theory because I knew more about it than the teachers did. So, and so dial it back for me because I wasn't there in the 50s. No, I would like to tell the audience that's absolutely true. For people who can't see me, but seriously, explain to me the 50s because I have this idea being a child of the 80s, 90s, that everybody believed in God. Well, it's not true, of course. Uh, First of all, you have to look at the history, uh, not only of the world, but the United States and the situations that were involved here. Evolution actually was very strong even in the 1700s. Darwin didn't invent the concept. And in the Bible, when you read three books of the Bible, Romans chapter 1, Acts chapter 17, 2 Peter chapter 3, you realize that even 2,000 years ago, the church was having to deal with the science of creation versus evolution because the Greco-Roman philosophers were evolutionists and were teaching evolution for 600 years prior to Christ. But if you take a look at evolutionary philosophy, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you look, for instance, in the book of Judges, twice it says, when they had no one to rule over them, each one did what was right in their own eyes or sight. That's an evolutionary worldview. When there's no lawgiver, you become your own lawgiver. So interesting, because I think we want to think that we are learned people, therefore we've written God out and we don't have a need for him. But you see, evolutionary philosophy starts in the Garden of Eden. What was the first deception of Satan? It was, hath God said? Oh no, he didn't really mean that. He's really not who he's told you he was. He just knows that if you knew what he knew, then you'd be just like him. And so Satan's first deception is always evolution, that there is no God. That you are God. And that you can be a God. Or that you can at least be your own lawgiver, that you can write your own rules. I I don't know, Jules, what your background is in terms of how many sermons you heard, etc., but you probably heard at least one sermon in your life on original sin. Most people get that wrong. You know, most people think, oh, they ate the apple. Well, no, that's an outward manifestation of an inward sin. 
The first sin was when Adam and Eve initiated human autonomy. Now, the word autonomy means law unto self. You know, living by God's rules, God's law, and he only had one to begin with. Then what happens? They say, well, we're not going to live by his law, we're going to live by our own. And that's when they initiate human autonomy, which is the first sin. If you think that on into the future, again, the Greco-Roman philosophers were evolutionists. They were teaching exactly the same thing 2,000 to 2,600 years ago that's being taught at the university today. So is not this great idea that we've all come up with now and we are... It's nothing new. No new sin under the sun. There are only two worldviews. Now, again, Creation Worldview Ministries, and it's creationworldview.org if you want the website. But we're stressing a Christian biblical worldview. And initially, regardless of anything else you say, there are only two initial worldviews. There's the creationist worldview and the evolutionary worldview. From those two worldviews, you can get seven major worldviews, and from those you can go into minor details. But initially you start off with either we came about through a natural mechanistic mechanism of some sort that mass, energy, and time are eternal, and the God of random chance, or a creationist viewpoint. Well, in modern times, now I'm a biblical scientific creationist, we trace our roots back in modern times, 400 years to the great Elizabethan creation-believing scientists like Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, on into Boyle, Faraday, Maxwell, Clerk, uh, Louis Pasteur, George Washington Carver. They were all Christians, and they were all creationists. With that in mind, then, in the 1700s, the, so to, so to speak, scientific evolutionists came along. And about 1800, they convinced the church fathers of that time, 200 years ago, that, well, evolution has been proven as science, though it was not, and that creation was simply religion. And they went and said, you take care of religion, we'll take care of science. And so by the time of the American Civil War, there was already a great schism in this particular area. That led to people like John Dewey, who was the signer of the first Humanist Manifesto, had tremendous influence over the American education system from about 1900 to about 1950. And after World War II was over, the GIs came home, including my father, and they said, we've made it. You know, we survived. We, we fought a war and we came home. A lot of guys didn't. And they said, now it's our turn. You know, we, we survived, now it's our turn. And what happened was this tremendous surge of liberalism. And the thing was that evolution had been taught in the schools alongside with creation for a time. And everybody goes back to the monkey trial, scopes trial, whatever you want to call it. And thinking that because of that trial, uh, that evolution was not to be taught in the public schools. And of course, the idea was, well, if it's going to be taught, then we want to teach it exclusively. The last time creation was taught in a public school in the United States as a legitimate credit course was in the late 40s. By 1950, it was predominantly teaching of evolution in schools. Now, there were states, for instance, like Kentucky, where it, it really wasn't until modern, and I say very modern times, until this last decade or so, that there were still schools in Kentucky, school districts that would still teach creation too. But the ACLU has actually intimidated every school district in the United States to teach evolution only. Well, what that does is it teaches people there is no God, there's no lawgiver, that we are our own lawgivers, that man is the measure of himself. And it goes back to the original sin. It, but it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
So explain to me, little Grady, so I am picturing little you going around all the classrooms, explaining to everyone how evolution is right, which is, which is pretty hilarious, third grade, going around and teaching. True. So what was that spark that caused you as an atheist to give creation worldview a chance? Well, I found it creation worldview, but that was after I became a Christian. So it, it, it's very, very rare for a person to be an evolutionist and then instantaneously become a creationist. But it's a process of this. What happened was, I've always been a seeker of truth, since I was born. And, and my mother says I was born teaching. I figured she ought to know she was there. So that's why I was already teaching publicly at the age of eight. But I'd always been a seeker of truth. Even today, I'm still seeking truth. Of course, I have found truth. Because truth is not a concept, it's a person. But I, I was looking for truth. And because I was raised in this environment where evolution was taught only, I thought it was true. Because, you know, we'd like to think our teachers wouldn't lie to us. Our teachers wouldn't deceive us. But the fact of the matter is, teachers will lie to you. And they will deceive you. And they will try to get you to believe their worldview to support themselves as opposed to what's truth. What's true is not what's being taught in the schools typically. And so at the age of 27, I, in a search for truth, became a Christian. The reason was that even though I was a graduate teacher of evolution, and I taught evolution from the seventh grade to the university level, in the search for truth, I had been around Christians all my life. Now, again, they were teaching only evolution at Berkeley in the 50s, but you couldn't grow up in the United States after World War II without a basic knowledge of Christianity. So you had basic ideas. Well, you know, I, I knew there was Christianity. I knew that there was a Jesus Christ. I knew there was a Bible, though I'd never read it. You know, I mean, you, just, you couldn't grow up in those days without a knowledge of Christianity. And the Bible Belt still existed at the time. Um, I would say it doesn't exist anymore. It's a historic entity. But, but, but I knew about it, and I'd had a few Christians try to witness to me ineffectively. You see, that's just it. There are Christians who, who share their faith, and that's a perfectly valid way of winning others to Christ. But it doesn't work with everybody. People, people like me. Uh, because you seek truth. Well, that's just it. You, you know, people come in different ways. There, there's a spectrum of how people come to Christ. There's the, on one end, the intellectual, and on the other end, the emotional. And everybody comes to Christ somewhere in between. Now, it may be 60-40 for one person, 70-30 for another 80, 20, for me, and, and I think you'll have to agree, the Holy Spirit is a perfect fisherman. He always uses exactly the right bait. For me, the bait was the intellect. As I say to people, I came to Christ 98% intellectually and 2% emotionally. But in a search for truth, I finally said, look, enough is enough. Either Jesus Christ is who he says he is or he's not. It's an ancient argument. It's not new with me. I mean, C.S. Lewis and others had the same experience. But nonetheless, uh, the, the old argument was he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. But basically, it's either he's Lord or he's not. He can't be a good prophet or a good man. Well, he's either lying, knowing it intentionally, or he's a lunatic. He's lying unintentionally. Or he really is who he says he is. I mean, that's the best, best way to put it. So how did you come to the conclusion that he wasn't a lunatic, that he was your Lord? Well, or neither a liar. But I spent six months entirely by myself without anybody leading me, other than I realized, looking back, it was the Holy Spirit. But I spent six months just looking at it afresh. I, I read the Bible for the first time. 
Did you go back to Genesis or John? I mean, where did you start? Well, of course, a lot of people like to say you start in John before you go to Genesis. But if you know about groups like New Tribes Missions, which is located near us in Orlando, they start at Genesis. Because if you don't have the creation foundation, you don't have any Christianity. Well, I started with Genesis, but I looked at also the ancient histories. And so people don't realize this. They think that Jesus is only mentioned in the Bible. Well, Josephus does mention him, but what they don't realize is there's at least nine or more valid, accepted historians who talk about Jesus Christ. He, uh, Jesus Christ as a person is more established than Homer. You know, we, we have far more evidence historically that Jesus Christ lived than we do some of the other ancient people that you would say, oh, well, Homer wrote the Iliad. But, but we know almost nothing about Homer, but we know a great deal about Jesus Christ. And I read the Gospels and realized their legal depositions, their eyewitness accounts. You could take them into a court of law and establish the existence of Jesus Christ today. So the question is not, did he live? The question is, who is he? And so for six months, I diligently studied this. And again, I thought entirely on my own. But at the end of six months, I came to the conclusion Jesus was telling the truth. Now, if you're going to seek truth and you find truth, you've got to accept it whether you like it or not. And so intellectually, I became a Christian. It was a 98% intellectual thing because nobody could be 100%. I mean, again, you've seen people maybe run down an aisle with tears in their eyes, but they had to make a decision to do it. So the intellect was always there. The emotion's always there. For me, it was very little emotion initially. And I knew some little about Christianity at the time. I mean, you think about it. I'm a, I'm a scientist. I got a couple of degrees to prove it. But the fact of the matter is that I knew so little about it. As a scientist, you know, when, when you read the textbook, you sort of expect there to be a checklist at the back of the book, and there isn't one. So I made an appointment with an associate pastor of a local church who accepted, you know, my call, went in, talked with him, in, you know, an interview, and explained the story in a longer detail. And I said to him, is there anything else I need to do? And he looked at me and he said, so your decision is firm. And I looked right back at him, and I said, if you knew me, you wouldn't ask that question. And since he didn't know me, um, it kind of took him back a little. You know, He kind of leaned back a little bit and thought about it for a moment. And he said, okay. And he opened the Bible, and he said, you need to make it public. He opened the Bible and said, you need to be baptized. And I said, fair enough, it's there. And so the next weekend, I walked an aisle, and I was baptized shortly after that. And uh, the problem was that just made me a saved evolutionist. Again, it's an extraordinarily rare thing to go from evolution to creation, boom. Usually most people take a process, and the unfortunate process is that they normally go to theistic evolution and then come back around to creation if they ever make it. Because they've been so indoctrinated in school and college and university that evolution is true. Once they become a Christian, they think, well, God used the evolutionary process to create what we see today. That's called theistic evolution. So stop you right there, Grady. You were a Christian that believed in evolution. Well, I mean, the point of being saved, I was a believer of evolution. Even then, I think coming from an atheist to saying there's a Jesus, like, I mean, what happened with your colleagues? What was their response? At that particular point in time, I was not in the academic world. I was actually in the business world. And were you married at the time? In two months, 50 years. Congratulations. What did your bride say? I mean, she married you, and that's a whole other story right there. She's already a Christian. She's a PK. You see, I grew up uh, born in the Army, 
grew up with a regimented, disciplined lifestyle. And I grew up with an Old West ethic. I don't know if you're really familiar with the Old West ethic. But the Old West ethic is you ride hard, shoot straight, and you tell the truth. And it's based in Judeo-Christian philosophy. Uh, people don't realize this. I'm actually a product of the Old West. Um my ancestors actually were cowboys and Indians. I have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of the United States, and I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. So when you came back to your wife after that six months of just diving into the Bible? Well, I dare say she'd been praying for me, but she was already a Christian. She knew I wasn't. But, now, here's the thing. I was what the world would call a good person. Because I'd grown up in that Judeo-Christian ethic without realizing that it was really a Judeo-Christian ethic, but I'd grown up with that Old West mentality. And I had grown up with no concept of racism, because to me, I didn't care what you looked like. If you told the truth, you were a good person. If you lied, you were a bad person. It didn't matter whether you were purple with yellow polka dots. And so, in growing up that way, when my wife accepted uh, you know, marriage with me, uh, she knew that morally, ethically, I was a good person. Now, you'd have to ask her whether she expected me to become a Christian later or not. But certainly she was raised as a Christian herself. She had received Christ as a child. Her father was a pastor and an evangelist. And they knew it. You know, I asked for a hand in marriage, went to her parents, etc. We didn't elope. We didn't upscound. Um... And they knew who I was and what I was, but they agreed. So three years later, I became a Christian. The thing is that that just made me a saved evolutionist. Now, here's, here's the problem. How can you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe and still teach evolution or still believe in evolution? Because at that time, I was in the business world, so that wasn't a big issue. And so I had a huge problem, but I was smart enough to know I got a huge problem. So I spent another 16 months studying the problem. I took a blank sheet of paper, did not allow what I had learned and taught others to influence me, and looked at the question again scientifically. And I came to realize over 16 months that not only had I been lied to, but there had been things I'd never been allowed to see intentionally. I'd been censured from seeing evidence. I had been prevented from thinking thoughts or being introduced to other interpretations. At the end of 16 months, I came to the realization there's no science to support evolution at all. It's a fairy tale for adults. The last night of that 16-month process, I became a biblical scientific creationist, meaning a person who accepts 100% from the Bible and 100% from science. The creation is true and occurred 6,000 years ago in six little 24-hour days. But the last night, I asked myself one final question. Could the law of gravity ever evolve? No, I mean, I've been studying science for close to 70 years. I can think of no way that gravity could ever be anything less than it is. And that's a good thing. That means we're not flying off this planet. Well, it's, it's one of the universal laws that allows life to exist. And we call it the law of gravity. Well, you can't have a law without a lawgiver. Gravity could never have evolved. It could never have been something less and evolved into being what it is. And that's the last straw for me. But, of course, during the 16 months, I'd been studying natural law, natural process, and physical evidence. If you think about it for a second, the basic laws of science, thermodynamics, genetics, motion, gravity, 
cannot exist without a lawgiver, and they, none of them could evolve into existence by random chance from something else. If you take a look at natural process, now you know no process is of any value unless it's whole and complete. You have a process by which you do your program. You have a process by which you went to school and you learned best. You found out what was the process that you learned best. I don't know which it is for you. Everybody's different. But you all know about photosynthesis. Now, if you remove one step, it doesn't work. Yet it is responsible for somewhere between 98-99% of all life on Earth existing. Now, some life doesn't require it, but very little. And so it could not have evolved. It had to be created. It had to be created whole and complete. It could never have been anything less. It could not have evolved or been added to slowly and gradually. It had to come into existence whole and complete. That had to be created. And remember that growing up in the paleontology laboratories at Berkeley and being trained as an evolutionist with all my degrees, um, I knew what they taught was in the ground. But let me ask you a question. After you got out of school, and I assume you went to a school that they taught evolution, did you ever go in and dig in the ground and see whether or not they were telling you the truth? Well, then how do you know they were telling you the truth? Because they said so, and it was in a book. Because it was in the textbook. And the geologic column, the geologic time scale, depending upon what you want to call it, that you see in the textbook, which looks nice and neat and orderly, and the youngest is at the top and the oldest is at the bottom, and each different little layer shows you different organisms existing at different times, only exists in two places in the entire world. That's in the textbook and the minds who believe in evolution. It doesn't exist in the ground. Now, I do want to understand you know, qualify that so everybody understands what I'm saying. Layers do exist in the ground. Fossils do exist in the ground. However, the layers are not in the order shown in the textbook. There's no in the world that you can find a geologic column all in one place. The layers are upside down, backwards, missing. We have folded layers, polystrate fossils, all kinds of things that totally contradict what the evolutionists teaching. I just turned 40, so you're talking the many years of this is the truth, this is how it is, being taught in kindergarten, this is how the world was created. So why is it important for believers to have a Christian worldview? It's really very simple. First, I want to make a statement that what you believe about the age of the earth and the universe, whether you believe it's 6,000 or, or billions, is not the salvation issue. We want to clearly state that. That is not the salvation issue. Knowing Christ is a salvation issue. However, why should creation versus evolution, why should 6,000 years versus millions and billions of years be important to you? And it's really quite simple. The Bible absolutely talks about 6,000 years ago, a creation whole and complete in six literal 24-hour days. It was spoken into existence, but in a period of six days that are exactly like the days we have today, one rotation of the earth each day. Now, the amount of time for each day is a little different because your spin rate has changed, but it's still their 24-hour days. And basically 6,000 years ago, the, the genealogies, particularly of Luke, uh, definitely prove this. Okay, so there's no question what the Bible says. The question is, do you believe what it says? Or do you accept what it says? Why is it important to a Christian? Very simple. If you believe in any old earth view, and there are different methods, the gap theory, day-age theory, allegory theory, etc. But if you believe in any old earth view mechanism to justify believing in millions and billions of years in your own mind, why would you want to do that? 
when the Bible clearly doesn't say that. It would only be because you want to believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of supposed years. Now, if life and death have been going on for millions and billions of years, that means that the death of an nefesh organism occurred prior to human sin. The word nefesh is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means soul, but soul is intellect, emotion, and will. Now, the Bible clearly says that insects don't have nefesh. But cats, dogs, horses, cows, dinosaurs, and people have nefesh. Now, we're not animals because we have a spirit that makes us different than animals. But higher animals have nefesh. They have soul. Limited in intellect, but nonetheless they have it. So higher animals do have soul. They don't have spirit. Now, if you believe in any Old Earth view, you are saying that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of years, that a nefesh organism died prior to human sin. If that is true, then I want you to grab your Bible, grab the book of Romans, and tear it out, because you've just negated Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15. You might as well tear out 1 Corinthians while you're at it, because Paul says no nefesh organism, nothing with a soul died prior to human sin. That it was the sin of the first man, Adam, that brought death, and death can only be experienced by a nefesh organism. In the Bible, plants never die. They wither, they desiccate, they dry out. They are biologically alive, but they don't have nefesh. Insects, we say they're alive, they're little tiny robots that go around doing things, but they don't have nefesh. The word nefesh, soul, intellect, emotion, will, also refers to blood and life. Now, those organisms don't have blood. That's another way of looking at it. Now, if it's true that a nefesh organism, a dinosaur, died before the sin of Adam, then human sin is not the causative agent for death to come into the universe. If that's true, then the death of one man on a cross is meaningless. The question is, Death came into the universe through what mechanism? Is it a natural process that death is not a result of human sin? Is it just a normal process? Because again, if it is common, if death is common, and human sin isn't the agent by which death came into the universe, then the death of one man on a cross is meaningless. The the, the death of Christ is meaningless. It is only when you understand a recent creation occurring 6,000 years ago that God started with one man and one woman, Adam and Eve, that they sinned, and only as a result of human sin did death then come into the universe. It is then and only then that you can understand how the death of one sinless man on a cross can atone for the sins of the world. I think you're answering a question that I had. I was having lunch with my friend Jennifer, and I was telling her that you were going to be coming in. Her pushback was, couldn't God have created evolution? And started the process. But it sounds like what you said, take out Romans and take out... First Corinthians. And that's just it. She's wrong. She's wrong for a variety of reasons, not only biblically, but scientifically. First of all, evolution's impossible. You'll never get an increase in intelligence or complexity by random chance. You only get intelligence or complexity by the input from a greater intelligence. So, first of all, the laws of genetics prevent evolution from occurring. Things don't get bigger, better, faster, smarter. They get smaller, slower, and dumber. And modern research has proved that to be absolutely true. So, if you think about evolution, it says the simple becomes complex by random chance. 
Creation says you start perfect, and because of human sin, it starts to degrade. And that's what we see throughout the entire universe. Everything is in a process of decay. Now, she wants to say that God would use a cruel method to create, because evolution is cruel. Charles Darwin wrote that it was nature, red, R-E-D, meaning blood, red in tooth and claw. He said that evolution was the, the greatest thing through a process of death. Evolution is a religion of death. So first of all, a, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnijudicious God would not use an evolutionary process. It's cruel. It's wasteful. And he says he spoke it into existence whole and complete. So it's contradictory to the, you know, what the Bible tells us. But the fact of the matter is, if life and death of an official organism for any mechanism whatsoever have been going on before human sin, you negate the cross. And that's what you really have to stress to people. Without a creation foundation, there's no Christianity. Because if you don't have a creation foundation, then the cross is meaningless. Yeah, it's logical what you're telling me, but I think sometimes we're trying to hold on to what we've been taught in the schools and then what we know as truth in the Bible, and we're trying to have both of it, and you can't. Well, again, let's think about how easy it is to show people that it's true when it comes to creation. As you would expect, I'm going to go back to Paul. He was the first creation evangelist. Now I'm a creation evangelist. And Paul, I'm just following in his footsteps. But in Romans, he uses the single greatest argument for the existence of God there is to the human intellect. And that, and I'm just talking about to the secular intellect. He uses the argument by design. The human mind intrinsically knows the difference. God gave us an intrinsic ability to know the difference between randomness and design. Now, you know that you and I are here at the moment, and I have never been in this spot before. It's the first time I've ever been here, correct? Now, around us at the moment, let's say we have a table. Okay. That's about as simple as it gets, you know, five pieces put together. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I've never touched it, and you know I have never touched it because you've seen me the entire time I've been here. I've never weighed it, tasted it, tested it, smelled it, never sensed it in any other way other than to realize that it is in existence here. The one thing I absolutely know about it is there was a table maker. Because things like that don't come into existence by random chance. Now, I've never touched that microphone, okay? But we'll agree it's there. But for all I know, that's a hollow tube. There's no actual interior there. So whether it's a fake microphone or a real microphone, the one thing I do know is somebody made it. Because things like that don't come into existence by random chance. Same thing is true of a building. When you drive by a building that you've never been in, now, I, I live in Orlando. It's become Hollywood East. When you drive by a building, never having been in it. Now, it could be an empty shell. It could be a Hollywood set. But what do I know about it? I know there was an architect. I know there was a building contractor. And being in Georgia, I know that there was a building inspector. But I've never seen them. They're invisible to me. And Paul says, The invisible God has made known to us through the things he has made. It's the single greatest synopsis of the argument by design I've ever seen written, as you would expect from Paul. And so we have all the evidence around us to know that there has to be a creator God. Because when we see design, we intrinsically know. Now, that table and that microphone are utterly simplistic compared to one human cell. 
Every cell in your body has as much complexity as your entire body. There's a 3 gig flash drive in almost every one of your cells. The average human body has 85 trillion cells. Inside almost all of them, there's a 3 gig flash drive. Now let me ask you a question. If you were walking down the street and you suddenly turned the corner and ran into a pile of 85 trillion 3 gig flash drives, would you believe they came about by random chance? But the evolutionists want you to believe that it came about by random chance. I, I could wow you with all kinds of numbers, but if I were to take the DNA out of your entire body and print it in books, I could fill the Grand Canyon of Northern Arizona 78 times. Just with the books I could print from the information in your body. Now, with that in mind, think with me for just a moment. They want you to believe that all that information came about by random chance, but the correct response is not a chance. I said this in the very beginning, I shy away from those difficult conversations, you know, with my family, my friends, my neighbors, because I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question I don't know the answers to. You know, I wasn't that great in science, and um, it might be a shocker to you, Grady, but I barely got through any of my science classes. It was just through a lot of prayer. All right, so how do I do that? How do I confront that fear that I have? Well, I think it's a legitimate fear. That's what most people have, is I have a lack of knowledge. But I mentioned being a creation evangelist. I mean, a creation worldview, that's what we're about. Now, I mentioned earlier that sharing your faith is a perfectly valid way of winning others to Christ. There are people that doesn't work. They want answers. And I want to sensitize everybody listening. The world is asking good questions. And if you don't have good answers to good questions, they've got no reason to pay any attention to you at all. And so, when you're trying to witness for Christ, and somebody says to you, what about the dinosaurs? What about the millions and billions of years they taught us in school? What about the supposed proof for human evolution? You know, I grew up in church, and I can tell you the pastor would always tell me if I said something, he would say, well, you just need to have faith. That was like the blanket for everything. So, me asking questions was my lack of faith. First of all, I think that was a very unfortunate statement by the pastor, because what happened to study to show yourself approved? What happened to be ready to give an answer? Because simply because you have faith is sufficient for you as an individual. And, and there are people who believe in Christ, again, 98% emotionally, and they're going to go to heaven. That's not the issue. It isn't how much you know that gets you in or out of heaven. But when you're witnessing... I call myself an ammunition bearer, okay? You know, I'm bringing you the ammunition, but you have to use it. And so the seminars that we're putting on, the website at creationworldview.org, we have tons and tons of free articles. We have over 150 called Did You Know videos, all less than five minutes long, most of them less than three minutes long, each one with an individual argument, or sometimes two, to prove that evolutionary time is not true. There's over 350 scientific arguments that the Earth and the universe are young. Evolutionists don't have one scientific proof it's old. They have five major arguments to deceive themselves and others into believing it's old, but they don't have one proof. Think with me, Jules. If they had one scientifically valid proof that it was old, then I'd have to agree with them but they don't have one, and I don't agree with them. And so we do have the science to prove it's young. There's no proof for human evolution. 
It is so easy to debunk the methodology that evolutionists use to promote evolution that I can teach a child to do it. I can teach you to do it right now. The fact of the matter is, when they talk about human evolution or the evolution of anything, and that roses, dinosaurs, I don't care. Did you notice that they will line things up by size and shape? They'll say, oh, here's a little thing, and then here's a bigger thing, and here's a bigger thing. And they say, you see how one evolved into the other over time? That's called the proof by ranking, R-A-N-K-I-N-G. And the proof by ranking is the ability to line things up by size and shape. So let's give you a little example. If I were to take a unicycle, put it next to a bicycle, next to a motorcycle, next to an automobile, next to a Hummer, did I just prove that Hummers evolved from unicycles? But that's a logical order or sequence, is it not? Right. They do the same thing. Now, this is it's magic. Not black magic. It's stage magic. It's illusion to deceive you. So they take the skull of a gibbon, a skull of a chimpanzee, orangutan, gorilla, and a human, and they put them in a row, and they say, you see how people evolve from apes. Now, the answer for most people would be, yes, I do. But that's only if you make a special effects movie in your brain. Now, we've all seen modern special effects movies. Today, they're incredibly good. You've seen the technology. A person changes into an animal. An animal changes right in front of you. It's, but it's so good with the modern technology that it looks real on the screen. Now, you know it's fiction. You're sitting there. You know it's fiction. But it looks so real. So when somebody puts those five skulls in front of you and says, you see how one evolved into the other. You see how we evolved from apes. To the typical person, the answer would be yes, but it's only yes if you make a special effects movie in your brain and fill in the gaps in between with your own imagination. What is the truth? The truth is, no, I see five skulls lined up by size and shape, but that doesn't prove that one came from the other. It's an illusion. And I have a proposition for you. Now, I'm not a betting person. I don't condone betting, okay? You give me one skull each of a thousand real different animals. You know, the one skull of a dog, one skull of a cow, one skull of a deer, and so on. I'll pick and choose the skulls, and I'll line them up in an order to prove to you that apes did not evolve into people. What really happened, apes evolved into whales. Or I could pick and choose the skulls and line them up in a logical order sequence and prove to you apes did not evolve into people. What really happened is apes evolved into elephants or guinea pigs. You see, it's, it's a stage illusion, this proof by ranking, but it's their favorite method of proof. You see it in the textbooks, you see it in the classrooms all the time. But it's a method of deceiving people through this stagecraft illusion to believe that evolution is true, when if you really take a look at it, it's not. Well, and so I know that you're holding seminars and teach all over the world, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of parents that say, how do we combat this? Um, Because my kids during the day are being taught this, and then at home, it's almost like it's eroding what I'm teaching at, at the house. First of all, I mentioned the tons of free articles we have. We also have a bookstore, and we have a bookstore for materials starting at age 2 to 102. We, we do have a special, by the way. If you're over 102 with legal proof, I'll give you a free book. But we have different grades. We have general books. We have specific things. So, you know, if you want to dig deep in one subject, we've got materials. We've got DVDs, CDs, books. You want general books, we've got the broad-spectrum encyclopedic kind of books, some at the light level, some deeper level, but broad-spectrum. All those materials are available. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, we are to teach our children. The government isn't supposed to be teaching them. We are. 
And so, yes, they have to go to school. And I can tell everybody listening how to get an A in every course they ever take. It's real simple. You learn what they teach them and give it back the way they want it, but it doesn't have to be right. And so we must be respectful. We, we can't just go in there and bash tables. And the students have to be taught, even if it's just the parents doing it, on how to see, first of all, that the evolutionary view is fallacious and why, and be able to go to the teachers and say, I disagree with you, but I don't disagree with you simply because I believe this. I disagree with you because of this, this, and this. It's very simple. You know, if you think about it, in, uh, say, a general textbook on science, uh, in Chapter 3, they teach you that rocks became alive by random chance. But in Chapter 13, they say, but abiogenesis has been disproven, like the experiment by Louis Pasteur. And obviously that's contradictory. Take a look at the way that they date fossils. They do not. They make you think they use modern technology, carbon-14, potassium, argon. They make you think that, but the truth is they don't. How do they date the layers in the ground? How do they give ages to the fossils in the ground, according to their religion? But they do it this way. They tell you how old the layer in the ground is by the fossils it contains, and then they tell you how old the fossil is by the rock layer you found it in. It's totally self-serving circular reasoning. It proves absolutely nothing. And I give great examples in some of our presentations. For instance, if we were to go to Montana, there's a place called Chief Mountain. It's the very tip end of the Lewis thrust, overthrust. And there's a big block of gray matter here with many, many layers. It's sedimentary rock, dried out mud. That's what sedimentary rock is. And it sits directly on another layer of dried out mud. And because evolutionists use fossils to date rocks and rocks to date fossils, because of the fossils in this big block of rock on top, they say it's one and a half billion years old. But it sits directly on top of a layer which has different kind of fossils. And because of these fossils, they say the layer below it is 110 million. A good scientist, a good scientist, and a good Bible student always asks the same two questions. What's there? Meaning that when I make a scientific observation, I have to adequately, adequately describe what I'm seeing and what's there. But the second more important question in science and the second and more important question in biblical studies is, what's not there? Now let's think about this place in Montana, which is not rare. We find this all over the world. I have pictures from mountain ranges all over the world. They're upside down and backwards, missing layers, etc. What's there? Well, the top's supposed to be 1.5 billion, and the bottom's supposed to be 110 billion, but what's not there? Well, first of all, everything in between is missing, and it's upside down, according to evolutionary thinking. But this is not rare. This is absolutely, excuse the expression, dirt common. You know, they use the Grand Canyon as a great example of, of the geologic column, supposedly representing 500 million years, but the truth is there's 160 million missing, even according to them. They just say, well... But the fact of the matter is they're not there, but they ought to be if they're right. And, well, see, that's it. Evolution is a religion. It's accepted by faith. It's not science. It is not science. It is religion. And I have an article, for instance, I wrote on the first, second, and third humanist manifestos proving that all atheists, the humanist manifesto is the atheist associations, the humanist association, 
all three manifestos require a belief in rocks becoming alive by random chance. So we either have an evolutionary worldview in which you're just a thinking animal, that you can write your own rules. So, for instance, when you have a situation like that, and it's mentioned in the book of Judges, that's 3,000 to 3,400 years ago, okay? I have a, a law. My law is that um, anybody who wears a striped shirt and wears glasses should die. I bet you don't like that law. And you have a law that says that guys who come in without wearing stripes, like me, and wear glasses and going bald, should die. And I don't like your rule either. You see, when you don't have a lawgiver, you have anarchy. When you don't have a set of rules and laws to live by that are universal. And God is the lawgiver. He says, this is right, this is wrong. Do this, don't do that. Although he did write the book of Proverbs. And the reason why is you can't write in the Bible everything that's right and everything that's wrong. So he gave us Proverbs to cover the gray areas. But the fact of the matter is, he says, this is the way by which we should live, and that a wise person would do this, and a foolish person would do that. And the question is, where are you in that spectrum? When it doesn't come to the exact things. But when you don't have that, you have anarchy, because everybody becomes their own lawgiver. You go around the world uh, teaching how creation and science are one in the same, so someone can go to your website and see, you know, a list of locations where you'll be speaking. Uh, so let's give out that website one more time. Yeah, it's Creation World View, V-I-E-W, not wide, view. So creationworldview.org. Again, tons of free articles, tons of free videos that are available there, plus the books, DVDs, CDs that we have. In order to prepare yourself to answer the questions, for example, dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible or their relatives at least 11 times. Do you know where they are? Can you show them to people? We have things like people and dinosaurs did live together with the proof not only from the Bible verses, but also from many, many different histories. When we go to Herodotus, we go to Alexander the Great, we go to Josephus, Pliny the Elder, uh, there's another guy named Philostratus that's also a, a Roman, um, Marco Polo. We, we've all the way into the Chronicles of Canterbury Cathedral and all the way to 1883. We find reliable historical records of people and dinosaurs living together. And the last one in 1883 came from an evolutionist. Now, I think when an evolutionist tells you that a dinosaur died in 1883 down in South America, it's worth paying attention to. Because all the other guys say they died out 65 to 70 million, suppose, years ago, right? And then we have art and artifacts to prove that people and dinosaurs lived together. We find the depiction of dinosaurs in the southwestern part of the United States, predating Columbus. We find figurines in Mexico. We find other artifacts all over the world, Cambodia, China, doesn't matter where it is in the world. We find the artifacts that, in fact, people saw dinosaurs and depicted them accurately, including dermal spines that we didn't even know existed on dinosaurs until less than 20 years ago, and yet they're being depicted accurately by humans that lived only a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. Check out Grady's website, and Grady, thank you for being so willing to sit down and talk with me, and let me ask all of these questions that I have had. Thank you very much.